the chairs and the racks under the chairs in front of you alternate hymn book, Bible, hymn book, Bible. Um, if you're visiting this morning and you don't own a Bible, take it. It's yours. It's our gift to you. Uh, nothing would delight us more uh, than to put a copy of God's Word into your hands. Exodus chapter 33. Uh, a couple of, of housekeeping items because it's been three weeks. Um, uh, first of all, uh, it is our practice to stand when we read God's Word. However, uh, the reason we stood for Revelation 3 was because I knew we wouldn't stand for reading the entire chapter of Exodus 33. Uh, so normally that would be our practice. However, uh, this morning um, uh, we won't. Um, and we are nearing the end. I know you don't believe me. But we're nearing the end of this series through the book of Exodus. Um, I, I need to count how many sermons this actually been. I don't count. I don't keep up. I just... But we're actually getting closer than you think because um, we're starting to take chapters at a time instead of just a few verses. In fact, in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, we're going to take three or four chapters all at once. And you will feel uh, like you've made some giant leap forward uh, in the book of Exodus. So, uh, Exodus chapter 33. Hear God's word. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, 
Please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he, Moses, said to him, God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And would you pray with me? Uh, we pray, O oh Holy Spirit, that you would teach us. It is your, your function, your responsibility within the Godhead. You have inspired these words. You've preserved these words. It is now your, your function to be at work in them and, and by them and through them in our hearts to renew and strengthen our faith and to point us to Christ. For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. If you were to... Um, Ask people what their greatest need was. What do you think people would say? What kinds of answers would you expect uh, people to give to that kind of question? What's your greatest need? Even Christians, food, shelter, clothing, happiness. Happiness is the big one today, right? God exists to make his people or to make people happy. All I really want is to be happy, whether I have a lot or, or not, or whether I have you know, really nice clothes or not, whatever. I just want to be happy. Or you could ask it this way. You could sort of turn the, the question around and ask it a, a different way. What would be the worst thing that God could take away from you? Maybe it's your kids, your parents, your spouse. Your house, your job, your income, your retirement account. What's the, what's the worst thing that God could take from you? Or, if someone walked up to you and said, describe heaven for me, how would you do it? What words would you choose? How would you describe? Someone walks up and says, look, I understand you believe in heaven. Could you tell me about it? What's it like? What are the things that you would talk about? What are the things that you would describe that, that there's no more sickness and disease? No more war? No more fighting and, and relationship conflict? Uh, no more cancer and surgery? Um, Maybe the streets of gold, the pearly gates, 
uh, mansions and that, that Jesus has gone to prepare for his people eternal joy. What are the things that you would use to describe heaven? Because the reality is all of those things are true. But I think all of those things miss the point. You know, you wonder sometimes um, you've heard you've heard people talk about the prosperity gospel, this notion that is pervasive in American Christianity, and it's really not a gospel at all. But basically it says, if you will just have enough faith, then you won't get sick. If you would just believe enough, then then whatever sickness or disease you have will leave you and, and you won't have to deal with it anymore. Or if you just believe enough then and, and love Jesus enough, then God will bless you and you'll have all the financial resources you could possibly need. If you'll give just a little bit to this organization and sow a seed, then God will restore that many, many times over. There's something I think about us in 21st century American Christianity that knows to say that's wrong. And then we turn around and do it. We're guilty, I think, of of actually believing a form of a prosperity gospel. We we want the benefits of redemption. We want to we want to make a big deal about what salvation gives us without actually making a big deal about the main point of our redemption. If we describe heaven as streets of gold and pearly gates and absence of war and sickness and disease, those things are all great, but they are not the point. This passage actually gives us the point. This passage actually tells us what our salvation is all about. First, I want you to see at the beginning of chapter 33, the rejection of God's people. Now, it's been three weeks. Um, I have been in a different country for two weeks. I'm slowly coming back to this time zone. Um, I'm assuming that you may not, I will grant you the benefit of the doubt that you don't remember three Sundays ago. Do you remember what happened just in the previous chapter? Because you can look back across at the beginning of 32 and look at the little heading in your Bible and see the golden calf. Aaron And the people of Israel got so tired of waiting on Moses to come down from the mountain that they decided, we don't know what's come of Moses. We're not really sure about this God person who brought us out of Egypt. Aaron, would you please make a God for us? And so he threw gold into the fire and out came a calf. And they fashioned this calf and they actually called it Yahweh and they ascribed to it the the work that God had done in bringing his people out of bondage in Egypt. And they bowed down and worshipped it. And we even made the, the, the observation that there were at least six direct commandments that were violated in that chapter. The people, in essence, wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted what they remembered the Egyptians having back in Egypt. A, a tangible, visible God that I can actually touch and watch and see and and worship. Well, 
chapter 33 gives us the, the consequences of their actions. And you see in the first three verses, God rejects his people. Now, I want you to listen carefully. Did you notice until we actually got to verse um, three? Did you notice a problem? I mean, listen to the things that God promises in these verses. Um, brought you out of the land of Egypt, promised this land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I told them that I would give this land to your offspring. I'm going to send an angel before you. We're going to drive out the people that live there now. And this land is flowing with milk and honey, and it's going to be yours. Did you see the problem? See, you and I read that and go, great. That sounds what, that's what I'm actually here for is the promised land flowing with milk and honey and all the bad people driven out of the land before I get there. That's what I'm signing up for. But did you notice the one word that should cause us trouble and probably does the opposite? Because notice God says, I will send an angel. See, I think Moses, I think at that point, Moses' ears go, his spidey senses go off, right? Hold on a second. Wrong word. The people, I imagine, go, great, great. What's the big deal? Moses is thinking, hold on a second. I don't want an angel. I want you. If we're going to go to this promised land and, and you aren't going to go with us, he says later, then what's the point? God says, I'm going to give you exactly what I've said I would give you, except that it's going to be an angel that leads you there. Is that not how we think of our salvation? I mean, I'm going to get heaven. Um, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, you know, I got my get out of hell free card stamped. I'm going to get to go to heaven and and. The land is going to be perfect and wonderful and all the relationships are going to be great and, and right and there'll be no more arguments and I won't fight with my spouse or my kids or anyone else for that matter. There'll be no more war. We won't have to deal with any of those things and, and flowing with milk and honey and we think that all sounds great to me. But would all that be the same if God himself weren't there? He makes it clear in verse 3. I will not go up among you. I'm not going to be with you. And the reason for that is you are a stiff-necked people, like, like oxen with a yoke on. And when the plowman pulls, the oxen say no. That's the stiff-necked language. When God says go this way, we say no. I'm going to go my way. I'm going to go the direction I want to go. I mean, don't get me wrong. New creation with no sin, no rebellion, no disease, no cancer, no surgery, no new knees, no relationship problems. That's all wonderful. But in the words of one, well, to paraphrase one Puritan, heaven without Jesus isn't heaven at all. All the milk and honey in all the world is worthless. Without God himself. And so the problem is that these people are a stiff necked people and their sinful rebellion and God's perfect righteous holiness 
if he were to come in their midst, they would die. They cannot stand with his holiness. His holiness cannot stand with their stubborn, stiff-necked rebellion. Wasn't that the problem with the church in Laodicea? You're wondering why we read from Revelation 3 for our New Testament reading. That was the problem there. You read about the church in Laodicea and where is Jesus? He's outside. He's not inside. He's outside. He's knocking at the... Okay, listen. I said it when we did our Revelation class a couple of weeks ago. I'm saying it again. That's not an evangelism verse. Revelation 3.20 is not an evangelist. That's not a helpless, weak Jesus standing outside in the rain, knocking, hoping that maybe someday somebody will open the door. The problem is you have a church who has decided we're kind of disinterested in Jesus. We kind of don't care anymore. We kind of aren't really, it's not that big a deal. And so they've, they've, in their stubbornness and rebellion, they've rejected him and he's outside and knocking. It's a fellowship verse not an evangelism verse. We see the rejection of God's people. But we also get to see the repentance of God's people. Notice in verses 4 to 6, they respond rightly. Nobody put on their ornaments. Nobody got all their nice, fancy clothes on. Um, Look, you understand this. You do not wear to a wedding, the same things you wear to a funeral. You just don't dress the same way. You just don't, you don't just, you just don't carry yourself the same way at a wedding as you do at a funeral. And the people here shed their ornaments. They got rid of their rings and earrings and necklaces and all the the sort of dolled up stuff they did they they put on their dark clothes and the dark dresses and the black dress not the you know bright happy fun summer things all evidence of their repentance all evidence that they've been cut to the quick in hearing that god would not be with them in fact it says it much as much in verse four when the people heard this disastrous word they mourned They give evidence of their sorrow. They give evidence of their repentance. They give evidence of their mourning, even in the way they dress. Yes, God told them, don't put on your ornaments. But then it seems they stayed that way. The people here are showing that they, in their outward dress and in their actions, exactly what's going on inside their hearts. There's, these are outward signs of their sorrow and mourning. You know, think about it. How many, how many Christians today would even notice? Heaven? Great. I'm in. Um, perfection? Absolutely. A, a, a marriage supper, a big giant feast, pass the gravy. God's not going to be there. Really? Huh. Would that be our response? Would that sort of, well, that's curious. That, that's interesting. Oh, well. 
and, and move on because of all the great things that we are, are getting. The reality is there should be no greater threat to the Christian than this danger that God would leave. There should be no greater threat to the church than that God would say, I'm out. You have been indifferent at best long enough have forsaken Christ, have forsaken my word. Why should I even be here? The people of Israel repent. They turn away from their rebellion. They turn away from their golden calf. They understand the the danger of a land without their covenant-making God leading them there. Are we seeking the benefits of our salvation more than we seek God himself? Are we seeking the things that God can give us rather than seeking the giver? There's a song I came this close to singing. Um, it's, uh, I think it's, oh no, I'm just, I think it's called the sands of time. Again, this is one of those old hymns. I know it thanks to indelible grace. Uh, one of the verses, the bride eyes, not her garments. You never see a bride walking down the aisle, looking at herself. It's fascinating, isn't it? She spent countless hours and dollars on money and hair and makeup. And she's been getting dressed for hours. And she's got this nice, bright, white Fancy dress on. Perhaps as fancy a dress as she will ever wear. And once those doors open, she never sees it again. The The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. Are we distracted by the the things we think God will give us? From, are we, is that distracting us from seeking God himself? The rejection of God's people, the repentance of God's people, and finally, the representation of God's people. The rest of the chapter is this glimpse into Moses as the mediator. Moses as the intercessor for Israel between God and his people. The people repent uh, Moses seems to fully grasp the, the, the gravity of the situation, the gravity of the threat itself. Moses has this long history of meeting with God. He's been on the mountain for weeks uh, at a time. He's come back down uh, because of the golden calf. He has a tent, and in this tent he meets with God. Now listen, I need to, I need to address the question you may be asking. Um, The language tent of meeting is used here, which is the same language used to describe the tabernacle. We've read about it and we're going to read about it again. John Calvin contends that that Moses has basically moved the tabernacle from the middle of the camp outside the camp as a, a visible visual reminder or a visual picture that God is leaving his people. Most modern people say this is a different tent altogether. And the reality is we haven't actually built the tabernacle. That comes in chapter 35. 
That's where you get multiple chapters at once on a Sunday morning. So this seems to be a a temporary tent that Moses uses for meeting with God that he's probably had with him for a while. And he makes a habit of going out to this tent to meet with God. And God descends and gives evidence of his presence in this cloud. And then in verse 12 to the end, we actually get to go inside the tent with Moses and listen to the conversation that he has with God. And and Moses in prayer lays out a a case before God. He lays out an argument for, um, okay, God, you just said you weren't going. You just said you would send an angel, but... And, and Moses sort of prays an argument back to God. Notice, did you notice verse 1? Um, back in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you brought. God already distancing himself from the people of Israel. Moses reminds God, look, these are your people and you have done this work. Do you remember the, what, what God promised to Abraham back in Genesis 15 and again in 17? He promised him descendants. Go out, count the stars, count the sand on the shore. That's going to be your offspring. You're going to have people. And Abraham's looking around going, I, I've got, I don't have a kid. I got nothing. Your descendants will be like the stars in the sky, like the sand on the sea. I'm giving you a people. He promised to Abraham, look, your descendants, those descendants, like the star in the sky and the sand on the shore, are going to be, they're going to spend 400 years in slavery in a foreign country, but I'm going to bring them out and I'm going to take them to the promised land. God promised Abraham people and a place. But do you remember the third thing? He promised, I will be God to you and to your descendants after you. Not only am I giving you people and a place, but I'm giving you my presence. And Moses goes into the tent and says, God, I need to remind you of the word that you have spoken. I need to remind you of the promise that you made to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob and have made to us. Already at the beginning of this chapter, God is God's threatening to remove that part of the promise. I'll give you the land. I'll take you there. You'll be a people. You'll have a place. I'll make sure that we eliminate all the, the people, all the ites that are living there now. But as for my presence, you won't have that. Did you, did you notice? You know, God, what makes us different from every other people in the world is you. What makes us different from every other group of people, every other nation, every other family, every other whatever, the one thing that makes us different from everybody else is that you are with us. Notice verse 16. Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct from every other people on the face of the earth? 
Is God everywhere? Absolutely. Omnipotent, the big fancy word, right? Is he everywhere? Absolutely. Is he is he blind or ignorant to certain corners of the globe, unable to know what's going on? Absolutely not. And yet he tells Israel, build a tabernacle because that's where I'm going to meet with you in a special, particular, covenantal kind of way. There's no other nation that has a cloud. There's no other nation that has a pillar of fire. There's no other nation that that God has personally brought out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt and is taking to the promised land. And that's Moses' plea. And in verse 13, If I've found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to, to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. <clears throat> he reminds God of his promises. Is that how you pray? Is that, is, is that the content of your prayers? God, let me just pray your word right back to you. Let me just pray the things you have said right back to you, to your honor and your glory, to remind you of your promises, to claim those promises for myself and my children and for others around me. If your idea, if your concept of the church today, and I don't mean grace, I mean the church, big church If your concept of Christians is that what separates us from everyone else is that we're going to heaven and they're not, you're missing the point. What separates the church from every other organization in the world is God's presence. That we have God himself. Now here's the danger. The danger is that we start getting crazy ideas that we're just that special. I've got God. I can do what I want. Like he's our cosmic butler, right? We call him when we need him. Give us the things we need. Go get it. Make it happen. Bring it. Okay, and now I just need you to go back to wherever you were until I need you again. This notion that somehow we have God because we're just that great. The reality is we're just like these Israelites. Our hearts are a perpetual factory of idols. Like a like a conveyor belt in a factory just spitting out idol after idol. Okay, maybe you don't actually go out into your wood shop and car I don't have a wood shop. It'd be a complete waste to be honest. But maybe you don't actually go out into your wood shop and carve a little statuette and set it up somewhere and bow down and worship it. But we make a God of our fill in the blank. Our possessions, our wealth, our spouse, our kids, our parents. Any number of things we seek, we desire more than God himself. Our hope isn't in our goodness. We don't have God because we are just that special. We have God because as the church, we've received his grace. We have God because he's just that gracious And merciful. Because we too have a mediator. Who pleads for us. We have a mediator who. 
sits right now in the very presence of God himself, the Father, and, and lets praise for, intercedes for our needs. He doesn't, he doesn't have to simply pray, God, remember what you told Abraham. He can actually say, God, remember what I did. Remember what I've accomplished. I died for that person's sin. I died to redeem that person. I lived a holy and righteous and, and perfect life because these people cannot and would not. And it's in Christ that God makes his glory known to his people. God saves his people by his faithful obedience. He pleads his righteousness on behalf of those he saves. And isn't that the wonder of our salvation? Isn't that the wonder of our deliverance? I mean, I, I'm curious to see what streets paved with gold looks like. A few years ago when we were in Verona, um, Foster Gullet, we have missionaries that are now in Milan. They were in Bologna at the time. Uh, and while we were over there, we met them in Verona, and, and he pointed out that the sidewalks in Verona are marble. Just an obscene amount of... He's like, that's just... That's the Veronans. Is that how you say it? That's the people of Verona flaunting their wealth to everyone else or, that would come and visit. We have so much money that we just, we just use really fancy, expensive marble for the side you're walking on stuff that you would only use in the most special and and places where you felt like I could splurge here I'm curious to see what streets of gold would look like you got to admit that's that's sort of fascinating right I mean and 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 the idea of 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 a feast of a celebration of sinlessness and and altogether righteousness and peace with one another, those things are all wonderful and unheard of in this life. But as Christians, you have God's presence with you now. You have that. He actually, Jesus actually tells the disciples that I will never leave you or forsake you. Surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit. May God give us the grace to delight in Him even more than in the things that He gives. Let's pray. Uh, Father in Heaven, You have given us Yourself along with all the other things. Would You forgive us for longing for the other things more than for You? And would You grow in us a desire for and a, a love for and gratitude for the fact that you are with us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. May we seek you and whatever else you throw in, great. For your honor and glory, we ask it. Amen.